letting the sport dictate what we're doing in the weight room um, instead of vice versa. Because, you know, I've worked in I've worked with people. I've worked on staffs where maybe there's times when we don't always think that way. It's more so like, oh, like, you know, I need to validate what I do. So I'm going to, you know, force feed my my style of training on this day, even though it probably doesn't match what's going on on the court. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So for the second time in three weeks, I'm joined by a director of performance at a organization in the NBA. So this time we have Daniel Bove, who is director of performance at the New Orleans Pelicans, and actually worked with Corey Schlesinger, who was the guest in the podcast two weeks ago at the Phoenix Suns. So in this episode, we focus predominantly on Daniel's new book, which is called The Quadrant System. And The Quadrant System is a way to organize a training philosophy and a training system. So we go into the details in this episode, of course, on how we orga- how Daniel organizes his strength work, how he organizes his speed work, how he organizes his plyometric work using the quadrant system. So it's really interesting and it's a really simple way to formulate what's needed on what day and how that complements the technical and the tactical training, which I think is the really key, really important bit about this. So you're going to get loads from this, whether you're in basketball, whether you're in football, whether you're in soccer, American football, whatever it may be. It's about the system. It's about the creativity to organize a training system and a philosophy. So I'm going to hand over to Daniel, but this is a superb episode and I'm one I'm sure you'll absolutely love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. I measure you have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor blue trident which includes ultra high g capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, 
including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Daniel Bove. Daniel Bove, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for uh, giving up a little bit of time while you're in Vegas to have a chat. Thank you, Rob. I've been a, I've been a fan um, since I graduated grad school uh, many years ago. This was actually the first um, performance-related podcast that I ever came across, so um, I'm humbled that you would bring me on here. I'll send you the money in the post. Thank oh, you no, very thank much. You. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Thanks, mate. So I know when I when I spoke to Corey, who's a, a former uh, colleague of yours, he said when I asked him this question about background and and kind of what you're currently doing, he was like, "This is the bit of the podcast where I fast forward to the bit where it gets good and people start talking about what I'm here to talk, what I'm here to listen to." So we'll keep it reasonably brief, but I think for me, it's always an interesting little segment just to get to know the person, get to know where they've been and what the, what they're currently up to. So if you wouldn't mind. Corey, if Corey's listening, he can fast forward this next bit because he knows anyway. But yeah. Uh, yeah, over to you. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no. So my name's Daniel Bove. I uh, I'm currently the director of performance for the New Orleans Pelicans in the NBA. I uh, I started out actually. My career was um, you know I, I graduated from Penn State. I worked in fitness and um, actually had a CrossFit gym for a couple of years full time uh, before I went back to grad school because I wanted to pursue working with athletes, athletes, which is what I actually went to college for. Um, and then came out of grad school, worked for the Atlanta Hawks for a few years as an assistant strength coach and uh, applied sports scientist and then left there um, to become the director of performance of the Phoenix Suns, which is where I, uh, I actually met and hired Corey um, to, to come aboard. And, and now I'm in New Orleans. So it's been... Um, been a fun journey and in a brief amount of time um but i'm, I'm enjoying it nice so that's Corey schlesinger if anyone's i didn't say the surname so if anyone's <laughs> wondering who the hell we're talking about it's uh schless strength <laughs> yes that's the one we talked about his instagram uh his influencer status mm. on the podcast which will have been out by the time we this this one comes out mm. but you were kind enough daniel to to send me your book and even before diving into it, which it only arrived the other day, so I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but I have dived into little parts that that were, uh, were going to be of interest for this for this episode. And even before diving in, just looking at it, I'm like, I've got so much respect for anyone who can pull this thing together. Like, it could be garbage. It's not garbage, but it could be. <laughs> and I'd have so much respect for someone that pulls together a book like that. So round of applause for you going the distance and making that happen. And obviously, thank you for sending me the book. However, I'd love to dive into it if we could. So would you give us a little bit of a background to the book itself, but also the main concept of the book and let you explain and how that came about? Yeah, so I guess um, I guess I'll break it into like what the first part is like how I came about writing it was really, um, you know, I think, you know, putting thoughts on paper is probably the best way to solidify and, and really like just look at your thoughts and your philosophy. So during uh, when COVID hit, like everybody else who wants, wants a side gig, uh, you know, you have a ton of time. And um, because of the protocols in the NBA, we weren't actually allowed to leave our hotel uh, premises in, in a bunch of cities that we were at. So you had a ton of extra time uh, when you're on the road because you're, you know, you're in some cities for three, four days. 
So, you know, that's a lot of time to, to spend, um, you know, thinking and, and like learning, reading, whatever you want to do. And, and I used it as a time where I really wanted to solidify like my process and my philosophy and, um, you know, really just look it over and, and put it on paper. And it didn't even start out as like, I want to write a book. It was really just putting it on paper. And then it kind of spiraled into this thing that, you know, I talked to a few people and, and Corey being one of them. And he's like, you know, put a book out. So that's kind of how it came about. Um, the a lot of the concepts that were you know put into the book started definitely when I was with the Atlanta Hawks is when I started to use quadrants as just a visualization tool and and I always found that quadrants when you're when you're talking to someone who doesn't really know data science or doesn't really know the intricacies of sports science but you show them a plot with an x and y axis they they tend to they pick it up pretty quickly especially when you're showing multiple athletes on um, on that plot so it became a really easy way to communicate with front office, really easy way to communicate with the coaching staff um, who maybe aren't as data savvy. And so it was a really good visualization that told a story. And I think most visualizations, like the whole the whole goal was to tell a story. And that's exactly what, what it does. Um, I started using, you know, quadrants to, to display workload really at the beginning, you know, acute and chronic, like, you know, when that was hot five or six years ago. And, um, you know, whether it's good or bad, and I know people have kind of come, you know, they've moved away from certain aspects of acute chronic. I still think uh, like acute and chronic in their own regard are cool things to look at. Um, you know, whether or not the ratio means anything mm -hmm. is another whole thing. But uh, in terms of displaying workload, I think it's they're really valuable tools. So. Anyway, flash forward, um, it became more about then, you know, I started to think of this concept of, okay, like where a guy's current load status is, um, where they are from a stress standpoint, uh, both acute and chronically, does that ever dictate how I train, how I train them, how I work with them in the weight room or decide to not work with them in the weight room or on the court, wherever, um, basically how I add more or take more stress away based on where they're at. So then it kind of turned into this whole thing of uh, exercise prescription and, um, you know, periodization. And then when I came to Phoenix, it, uh, you know, definitely uh, that's where I started to apply it a little bit um, in the way that you see it now in the book where you have volume and intensity as the X and Y axes and um, basically consolidating the sport stress that you see when you're on the court um, that the coaches really uh, – you know, put on the athlete and then what we do in the weight room uh, on my side and then trying to match the two in a way that moves the athlete forward and not backward. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it came to be. And the other, the other big reason why um, the quadrant system was attractive to an NBA setting was um, not only the stress consolidation, that was the main, that was one of the main goals, but, but it was also the, um, the chaotic nature of the sport being that we travel so much um, lineups are always changing. You know, there's a whole, there's a lot of logistical constraints when you have an 82 game season that's as chaotic as, as we have, um, that it's really tough to periodize. It's not impossible, but it's really, really difficult. Um, so instead of, you know, maybe having like a fully mapped out periodized, periodized plan, um, it actually helps to have principles that you can operate with, you know, on any given day, you know, maybe you have to change in the moment, you think you're going to have practice one day, or you think you're not going to have practice one day. And then all of a sudden, based on a performance or um, a circumstance that comes up, you have to change your plan on, on the dime. So, uh, you know, having a system with principles, which when you look at the, the quadrant system, it's essentially a decision matrix. 
and it's you know is it is today high volume or high intensity um, you know or is it low it's and it, you just answer that decision matrix and then it, you basically have where what you're going to do for the day um, okay. so you know, I'm kind of going off on a tangent but I'd say that's kind of how it came about and that's that's really what motivated me to write the book so in terms of principles that you mentioned there can you share them with us your mm-hmm. overall principles for periodization and planning yeah well um so for for the quadrant system specifically uh one of the when you're trying to talk with you know i I would say sports science and like the principles of sports science and just you know overload and um load in general really is is kind of foreign to the culture of of the nba and basketball Mm -hmm. i think as a sport it's very new so so when you're talking to um you know technical coaches and about uh, load in general, um, it's, it's very, uh, it's just very foreign to them. So what I think has been a really good way to bridge the gap and kind of move them closer to what we're trying to do is, is to just talk in, in, you know, using the variables of volume and intensity, keeping it very simple. And then, you know, obviously volume and intensity can mean many different things, you know, depending on what volume metric you choose or uh, what intensity metric you choose, but, you know, starting really basic to try to, um, create that relationship between uh, sports medicine and the sport coaches. Um, so principles wise, uh, when we're talking about, you know, building quadrants, um, focusing on those two variables on any given day, and then let, letting the sport dictate what we're doing in the weight room um, instead of vice versa. Cause you know, I've worked in, I've worked with people, I've worked uh, on staffs where maybe there's times when we don't always think that way. It's more so like, Oh, like, you know, I need to validate what I do. So I'm going to, you know, force feed my, my style of training on this day, even though it probably doesn't match what's going on on the court. Um, or like the big one is, uh, that I see, you know, a ton of people make the mistake on and, um, is, is, is really like days that are supposed to be off. Like they're supposed to be complete rest days, actually wanting to get lifts in with certain players because, you know, you want to matter as a practitioner and you, you, when you had four games that week and you were traveling, like you might not have not had time to work with the athlete, but you're still trying to validate your existence as a, as a strength conditioning coach at the NBA level. So then you, you try to push for that lift, but um, you know, that's another, you know, reason the quadrant system was, was made was to consolidate stressors, make the hard days hard, the easy days easy across the board, not just in one facet of performance. So from a planning point of view to try to marry those up and, and do what you said there, actually take the technical and tactical work mm-hmm. and fit your SNC and your role and what you're there to do around that. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And obviously use this system that you, you're talking about here, but from a day-to-day, like almost, I suppose, minute-to-minute point of view, how do you specifically, how do you specifically do that? Yeah, uh, great question. It uh, it definitely, it, it's always going to be different based on the coach you work with. Um, I've worked with coaches, and I, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, but I've worked with coaches that like to plan a month out. I, I've worked with coaches that like to plan a week out, and then I've worked with coaches that um, they don't they don't really know what they're doing until the night before, which, which is funny. Like I, I think to some people, especially people in, you know, uh, low frequency uh, sports where maybe it's like one one match or game per week, 
maybe that's crazy to them that like maybe you don't know what you're doing until the day before. But um, the NBA, and I used to think that way. I used to get frustrated with the fact that I couldn't, you know, block periodize in the way that I wanted to do it based <laughs> on all the, the, the you know, the Verkashansky books, and all the stuff that I read growing up or when I was getting into this profession. Um, I got frustrated. I couldn't do that. But when you really get into the NBA, you realize how crazy the 82 games can be with the travel, with the athlete you're dealing with and the sport itself. Um you actually become you become understanding as why you know you might be planning a day or two ahead of time or maybe the day of. So um, what I do, you know, currently it's really easy, and that's why using the the decision matrix is 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 I think it works really well. Um, for instance, if you're using just time on feet as a measure of volume, which I think is when communicating to the coaching staff is one of the best things to do. How long are these guys going to be on their feet on the court? And while it's not a one-to-one match, the correlation is pretty high with time, at least in basketball practices and games, like how long were you on the court? And it's going to correlate very high, highly with volumes um, of work, like distances and stuff, if you were to track with an LPS. Um, and then what I tend to do, what I tend to do is ask a coach how long we're going to go. Okay, what's today going to look like from a timing standpoint? Talk to the development coaches, the guys, the, the coaches who work on uh, – Individ- an individual level with the athletes. I talk to them about, okay, how long do we want to go today? Um, I give my feedback where, where they, where they want it. If, you know, if, if they say, you know, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go 90 minutes practice, maybe 20 to 30 minutes of an individual session. Um, and then we talk about like whether or not that is good or, or bad for the athlete on that given day. Um, but you know, these, these practitioners, these coaches, a lot of them have played the game and they know exactly how these athletes feel and they actually make really good decisions without having, you know, GPS or LPS data to, to back it up. It's really impressive, like what, what some of these coaches can do just based on their experiences. But that being said, they answer the question about time and then I move on to like how intense is this going to be? Are they going to touch live basketball today? And if they touch live basketball, then that's going to shift them to the right side of the quadrants, which is you'll see, you know, if you're looking at the uh, the X and Y quadrant system. So um, you can do that with RPE. You can do that with, you know, if you want to get real, you know, into the, into the micro, like you can estimate how much like high speed distance or high end accelerations are going to do. But like, I, I personally don't even think that's necessary. I think the framework is really easy and practical and, and easy to understand for the coaches. If you separate it into live play versus non-live play, and then you look at the time that they're out there and then you're going to be pretty, like, you're going to be close to the right answer if you use that framework. So I'd like to move on to the the mechanical quadrants because that's something that I'm guessing listeners will get excited about because it's the it's the time in the uh, in the weight room and the strength training yeah hundred <laughs> percent the strength training quadrant would you mind just giving us a little bit of an insight into that and also again maybe your principles in that area and how this quadrant helps you to create an output. And what does that actually look like? And obviously, it's going to link back to this marrying up with the technical and the tactical. Mm. But really good to, for us to dive into this little area, if that's all right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so, if I'm if you're, if you're visualizing the quadrants, um, you know, I guess because we can start at quadrant four. So quadrant four would be a high volume, high intensity day, and. That's obviously, you know, you're talking about usually your game days. Now, and it depends on how your microcycles are set up and it depends on your sport um, because there's some there's some situations where maybe practices, uh, depending on if you can taper, like do a mini taper for your 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 game or your match, um, 
maybe your practice your practice volume and intensity could be higher than your games essentially if you have time to recover. Um, basketball is not as much like that. Uh, your game days are usually your hardest days if you were to if you were to look at it, everything together. Um, so a game day is usually going to fall in a quadrant four, especially one with like a, a shoot around or like a, a walkthrough session in the morning. Um, that'll be both vol- high volume and high intensity. So. Um, one of you know you're hitting the highest speeds, you're hitting the highest accelerations and decelerations. You're taxing taxing the tissues of the body and the, and the central nervous system. So when I look at the basketball athlete, um, I kind of I've always found that the slow heavy resistance training um, that we that we utilize is is usually perceived as the the most taxing when you talk to these athletes. And this is one of the things I talked about early in the book is. The, the quadrant system is not a set thing. Like having strength, speed, repetition, and recovery as your quadrants, that does not need to, it does not need to be in the same order as I have it. It can be very based on the athlete and the sport you work with. Like maybe a hockey team, based on how their practices are, are work and how their athletes perceive stress, maybe they choose to do something different. Um, it's not set in stone. I found in the basketball environment with my athletes, strength on a quadrant four day, slower velocities, you know, I'm talking anything below like 1.0 meters per second average, usually below 0.75 meters per second average velocity. That's usually what we, uh, we tend to stick with. Um, but that's because they perceive that as the hardest stress as they also perceive games as to be the hardest stress. Mm -hmm. So we try to keep those on the same days. Um, game days, you know, we do a lot of our training on game days, especially with our, our roster, our athletes that are uh, high usage, the guys that get the most time. Um, and again, we try to keep the hard days hard and the easy days easy. So that's uh, that's kind of how we set up the strength quadrant. Um, Rob, do you want me to touch on all of them, Rob? I'd, I'd love you to, if that's all right. No, perfect, perfect. I mean, just just while we're, while we're on this, on this um, strength training quadrant, so what does that, lead to in terms of output so in terms of you pulling a pulling a session together based on that sort of information mm. how do you how do you kind of marry the two how do you bridge I that guess, bridge i, I guess two? maybe i maybe i'm not understanding the question that's that's my fault that's all right that's all right now so so we're looking at look at this this the quadrant with um the the this the slow strength training mm. which is perceived as the the highest effort for the, for mm. these guys, which is why it's on the high effort days to match the, the game. Mm. If that's am I, am I understanding that right. Yes. Okay. So what, in terms of the, the details of them kind of sessions, what does that actually look like? I mean, we spoke, I spoke to Corey a few days ago and he dropped the bomb of actually using machines. Oh yeah. When it comes to in, 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 in the NBA, yep. um, in his, in his, uh, organization, is that something that's integrated within your environment as well? Is that something that you would, um, you would jump on board with as well? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We use machines. Uh, we, we use machines almost every single day with our, with our guys. Um, if, I mean, if you're looking to, we have to load tissue and especially a sport like basketball where, uh, tendinopathies are so prevalent, um, being able to control the speed uh, and now where I use, where I use machines most mostly is going to be on a quadrant two day, which is repetition um, and time under tension. Right. So like we have a high volume stress on the court, um, maybe a little bit lower intensity 
and we push the volume a little bit more on those days. And those days tend to fall a little bit outside of games. So if they get a little sore from, from the volume, they actually are recovered by the time the game happens. Um, so I like to use machines on a quadrant two uh, when time under tension um, is is really what we're pushing. Um, to go back to where we were on quadrant four, uh, I mean, those are the heavy days. Those are the days that we're trap barring. Those are the days that we're doing, uh, you know, stuff with the safety bar, single leg work, um, you know, typically, like I said, typically after games and uh, paying attention to that velocity range. Overcoming isometrics are another one we like to use. Um, and if we do overcoming isometrics, it's actually, uh, you there, Rob? Go, mate. I'm still there. I'm still there. You're still there? Okay. I'm uh, still there, mate. I'm still there. Connection <laughs> went out for a sec. Um, Overcoming isometrics, depending on the player, uh, we may use you know pre-competition uh, as kind of an amp up or a potentiation. But at the same time, there's also athletes I don't like to do that with, uh, especially the athletes that are a little bit like more finesse or like fine motor skill oriented. Um, considering that will actually make them a little bit uh, like too jumpy, or is that is that the way you know? Um, yeah. yeah maybe one that really relies on that like fine motor skill won't want the potentiation that perhaps one of our centers or our wings might that needs to kind of get up off the ground, really move um, and have that CNS firing. So yeah, no, you know, so overcoming isometrics, you know, slower, slower, heavy resistance training on quadrant four um, machines, not as much, but uh, we definitely use, you know, the compound lifts, you know, that I, that I mentioned um, when we move down to quadrant three, quadrant three is usually on the sp- Sports side is going to be high intensity, lower volume. Um, so this might, this might, this could be a game day where you skip a walkthrough in the morning, um, or it could be a day that you just come in, you do small sided games with the athletes, or maybe they come in for a, for a short but intense forty five minute practice. Um, on this day, from a strength conditioning standpoint or physical prep, uh, we like to keep it. We label it the speed quadrant. So pretty much anything above 0.75 or above one point meters per second is kind of the velocity range. If you're looking for a velocity range, now we're not using VBT every day, you know, we're not measuring every rep, but, um, you do get, you know, you have an idea using the velocity system. Um, we also, we will still do, uh, overcoming isometrics into an immovable object on a quadrant three day. We keep the durations down on that. So I like to keep it, you know, between one, two, three seconds tops, um, as an overcoming ISO on this type of day. And then on a quadrant four, I'll let them, I'll let them push past that a little bit. Um, they might get up to six, seven, eight seconds on an overcoming ISO. Um, but yeah, power and speed is, is really what we try to hit on three. And the cool thing about that is uh, when you look at the way a microcycle tends to, to match up in the NBA, um, quadrant three days fall really nicely before game day. They tend to be lower volume, but there's that intensity there. So when guys are getting prepped for the following game, you know, let's say a team's working on transition defense. Um, they're hitting really high speeds that day before the game in really low volumes, but they're, they're hitting those speeds. So it's an intense, but short practice. And that's a great day to match some of the speed work and, and the power work that we do uh, in the weight room from a physical prep side. And then, you know, last but not least, uh, we have quadrant one, which is recovery, low volume, low intensity. Um, and that's usually full rest or, you know, any recovery modalities that uh, myself and the staff really think the, the players need. And that would be typically the day after the game? Typically the day after the game. That's correct. Okay. So because games are so close together, mm-hmm. how do you kind of, man- I know this is going back to what we discussed at the start, yeah. but how do you manage that in terms of using using these four quadrants that you've just outlined here 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And I think when you this is where having a really good, strong relationship with the coaches and being able to communicate well with them is it's so important because you you do need to if you're trying to map this out the right way, like yeah, we can do it the day before and we have to change. We have to be ready for the environment to change. But like, you know, looking a week or two out um, really helps from from a programming standpoint. So being able to look at the, the schedule and again, focus on principles, you know, what's like when we're traveling, like what are we what's most important to us when we're traveling? Um, the microcycle duration changes in the NBA where you might have Sometimes you have three days between games. Some days you have two two days before game between games, and then one. And then sometimes you have back to backs. So you have a game, and then the next night you play a game. So you have to look ahead in the schedule, and you have to kind of again focus on like what's important, um, what you're trying to get out of it. And you know sometimes you know you're looking at you're looking at who you're playing, like what are the teams you're playing? Um, are you going to be on the road? What time is the game? Like you're looking at all these factors, and then you're making a decision on. Um, what kind of quadrant should that day be? You know, on the court, should it be low volume uh, or should it be high volume or should it be low intensity or high intensity? And this is where that decision matrix really helps when you're talking to a coach about what do you want? You know, if we have three days between a game, maybe it makes most sense to go off day quadrant two, which is going to be high volume, but they can hit a lot of repetitions, um, a lot of kind of like a walkthrough or, you know, a, a technical session. And then we hit those high intensities at the speed that they're going to experience the day, the next day for the game on the third day. So going basically like if it's a three, three days between games, recovery, repetition, speed, and then you hit your game. Um, and then obviously, you know, adapting if it's two, two days between. Um, but like, I love quadrant threes as a potentiation for the game to come. So whenever, and whenever possible, I like to throw those in there. So does that answer your question, Rob? Absolutely. hundred percent. I'm just interested. I don't know if you hinted at it there and it was just the phrasing or, or or what, but would you change depending on the opponent that's coming up next? So if you're coming up an opponent that is, I don't know, you're battling for a, a playoff position, for example, would you then periodize and, and plan things differently to someone that's just lost seven on the bounce? I think, um, I don't know if it's that, I think more so like, you know, how physical the matchup is, Okay. You know, how, how physical of a matchup it is and you know, how, what's the style of play for the team to come in? Are they a team that likes to get up and down? Do they hit a lot of possessions per game? Um, or are they a team that really slows it down and like, it's going to be really a grind, a grind out like physical matchup. So, um, I think when, when I, when I say that, I, that's, that's more so what I mean, but, um, but yeah, I mean, sh- shoot, like. I think everyone would love to get to the point, you know, where you're you're looking at tactically, like those kind of things that you mentioned. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Daniel. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, of course, we carry on the chat around the quadrant system and look at different physical qualities and how Daniel organizes his philosophy and his system with regards to training that that uh, that quality. But we also dive into a an area that Daniel is very familiar, which is force plates. And we have a little look at a paper that he co-wrote with Jake Schuster and Dean Little on this uh, on this topic of force plate testing. So a really interesting and thought-provoking part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is the global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. 
Their annual Human Performance Summit has become a must-attend event for anyone interested in performance analytics and research. The North American Summit will take place on November 5th and 6th at the state-of-the-art UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I have actually been to and is an incredible facility. So with the attendance capped at 250 people, the summit provides a unique and intimate forum for live discussion and collaboration between human performance professionals across sport, military and public safety. So this year marks the first online tickets that are available, allowing attendees worldwide to experience the event virtually, which is an incredible offering from the guys at Fusion Sport. So to learn more and purchase tickets to Fusion's North American Human Performance Summit, please visit humanperformancesummit.com and use the code SPORTSMITH10 for a 10% discount. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed and agility all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can schedule a demo. And back to the interview with Daniel. Let's move on to the metabolic quadrants, if that's okay. Sure. Would you be, let's let's dive in. So extensive and intensive. Is that what we're going for with the metabolic quadrants? Yeah. No, that's perfect. Um, yep. Yeah. So this is an interesting one, and like I, I kind of battled back and forth uh, with these ones because they 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 change depending on the athlete you're working with. You know, if you're you're looking at the the high minute rotation players. They're not conditioning during the season. Like that's just they're playing 82 games. That's their conditioning. <laughs> yeah. So when you're when you talk about the intensive and extensive work, and and that means things to different people. Like what? So, well, someone calls intensive. I feel like those are buzzwords now. They like, are. Oh, 100%. People yeah, say yeah. intensive <laughs> and they mean this, but maybe someone else means this when they say it. Um. Uh, so. You know, when you when you're talking about conditioning, at least when you talk about basketball, you're really talking about the guys that are not playing all the time. You're talking about the lower the lower bench guys. So, 
Um, yeah, no, so like intensive, it would actually fall on a quadrant three day. So uh, low volume, high intensity. And those tend to be like those alactic aerobic circuits, the ones where, you know, maybe you're doing a med ball circuit where it's just repeated explosive, explosive efforts. And uh, so the goal would be basically to train alactic capacity <laughs> is what we're hitting on those days. Um, and then uh, when we look at the quadrant two, on that would actually be an extensive. So for this, you're either doing stuff that's extremely aerobic. Um, you know, I mentioned in the book, like one of the, one of the things I've, I've used for quite a while is like one, 180 minus, uh, minus your age as a heart rate to train at for like long, slow distance training. Um, and that, that actually, that's a really good way. If you, if you're not trying to make the guy too tired and you're really just trying to like flush a little bit, that's a good, good way to do it. Um, but then also, if you're actually trying to push a stimulus on a quadrant two day, I mean, VO two max and above, um, for anything, you know, that you're really, if you're really trying to get a training stimulus, you might want to do some intervals in that, in that area. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that's kind of how I, uh, I came up with uh, quadrant, uh, two and three, uh, with the metabolic, uh, quadrants, but if you, they have a high volume, high intensity day on the core, they fall in four. And then I actually don't push any conditioning with them. And then if they're, exactly. you know, in one, I don't push any conditioning with them there. So it's really, um, how can I say this? Like, uh, it's, it's a very polarized system. That's right. Yeah. So, so I keep looking down just to remind myself which quadrants, which, so please. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your listeners, God, God help your listeners, Rob. No, no, no. Don't be silly. No, it's cool. It's, it's, it's easy to follow on. I've just written them down. So I'm just making sure I'm, I'm saying the right, I'm saying the right thing, <laughs> saying the right thing. So you'd pair your aerobic work on your quadrant two which is repetition time and attention day yep that's right okay and what's the just remind us what the flip of that would be so the quadrant three would okay be, would be the uh yeah so low intensity um so that would be high intensity low volume and that's usually yeah. speed speed or power work on the mechanical side and then usually we're doing like a lactic repeats yeah on, on so what, what would so example sessions of of the latter what you just said there what what would that be? You mentioned the long, slow stuff at this um, quadrant two, mm -hmm. but what would quadrant three look like? Uh, quadrant three, uh, really med ball circuits, right? Where we're doing, we're doing yep. yeah, repeated med ball throws. Um, you might do, that's the big one. Um, I'm not going to hit, I, I really try to avoid too much impact on that day. So I'm not really doing anything with plyos or um, if I do, it's going to be on a soft surface of some sort. But, um, but usually med ball variations, things like that, or, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, even jumping on, uh, jumping on a bike and doing some alactic repeats there, some sprints. So mm -hmm. you mentioned plyos, where does that fit in? Where does that fit into this, this model? Yeah, that's a great question. And I thought about that when I was kind of going through it and it, I think, um, it would fall on a three or a four, but only in the off season. We don't really hit those during the season. I I think leading up to training camp, plyos for, for this population are, are great. Um, but once you hit training camp and and what they're doing on the court is basically plyos every day. So um, I think if you were going to put it anywhere, it would be in the uh, – it would definitely be the three or four. The three or the four. And I mentioned that in the book. There's I do talk about jumps being kind of – you know whether it's a, a ply or not, like just the jump training in general, I think goes really well on a three or four day. Okay. When I spoke to Boo Schecksnyder a couple of years ago, he mentioned about 
jumping athletes, so basketball basketball athletes would obviously fit into that, about this kind of not hitting your plyometrics, but this low-intensity, um, high-volume style jump training throughout mm. the season. Is that something that you would do or not? Uh, so, like, I think we, we call those aerobic plyometrics, where okay, it's like, yeah. you know, maybe you set up, you know, dozens of, of low-level hurdles, and it's just, you know, 20 yeah. minutes on the clock. We're going to do different variations of hops. Um, if we do that, um, it's, it is, we usually do it on the turf, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you know, take a little bit of that impact away, that ground reaction force, but, um, that's still something we do leading up to the season. That's actually one of our main ways to train leading up to training camp is actually increasing that volume of, of that, uh, that elastic ability. So, um, yeah, we, we get guys on the turf leading up to off season and, and we, we get them hopping and, and, um, increasing the volume. Like, so during the accumulation phase leading into a season, actually, you know, monitoring that volume and building it up. But, um, I would put that, that would fall really well on a three during the off season. Um, but I could also see it being justified as a two because of the volume being a little bit and it's, and it's lower level. Like you're not, you're not doing more than like 50 or 60% effort. So, um, I could see falling on a two or a three, and I think anyone. It doesn't matter as long as you can justify where and why you're using it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I want to finish off with fifteen or twenty minutes because I think this will this will be a nice little a nice little discussion around force plates. Mm. And you published the paper with Jake Schuster. I can't remember that was maybe last year, maybe the year before around the use of force plates in the NBA, which is a, a very nice structured paper on the different uses of force plates, where people might use them or where people do use them, the kind of metrics people may dive into depending on all them all them areas. Has anything changed in your mind around the use of force plates since then? And if so, what's changed? Oh, man, this is a, this is a great question. And we talked a little off air about this. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, no, so I think I, I force plates have a huge I think they have a huge place in the NBA and in, in sport in general. I mean they're the one they're the best tool for monitoring lower body uh, you know power and, and neuromuscular you know ability. Um, I love it because well, first of all, our players, we're in a jumping sport. So it really applies to my sport. Guys know how to load and unload. They know how to do it quickly. And most of them know how to do it well. So it's something you can repeatedly do. And um, it's not going to, it's it's just, it fits the culture of our sport. Um, it's repeatable. It's very low skill. So, um, and it, you know, obviously it gives you the neuromuscular uh, like readiness stuff. And for profiling purposes, it's great. So like when it comes to draft selection or, um, you know, just looking at prospects, it's a great tool to use to profile athletes and compare. Um, I do think it has been, and, and maybe I'm to blame because I, I, I put out some tweets that kind of went viral or whatever. And, um, about force plate and, and how I, how I use them and the metrics I like and whatever. But, uh, I do think it kind of became, I think it's it's sometimes over, uh, how can I say, overemphasized as as a, as a part of a program and, and its importance and its ability to make change. I think it's a cool way to understand how athletes move and what strategies they use to load, um, and you can make some cool interventions with it. But I think it's it's limited um, to that. Like I don't think you're you're ma- you're not making somebody. Uh, 
you know, you're not taking a uh, a bench player and making him an all-star with a force plate, mm-hmm. right? So, and then on on the other side, you know, we 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 talked about um, how you know some people might think it's overhyped, but at the same time, it's like it's like only if you let it be overhyped, it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tool like anything else. You know, you use it for what it's meant to be used for. You don't, you don't need to pretend like it's, it's the, it's your bread and butter. It's just, it's just a damn force plate. Like, um, use it for what you're supposed to use it for. Like, I don't, um, like you don't brush your teeth with a screwdriver, right? Like you, you don't, you know, that's not what it's for. <laughs> so yeah. it's the same thing with a force plate. It does what it does, but it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna really like change the athlete from like bench player to all-star. So so one of the areas that you spoke, or you and Jake and the, I think there was, another, was there another author on the paper? Uh, Dean Little. Okay, yes, of course it was, yeah. One of the areas was programming and using force plates to program. Is that something that you do in your current role? And if so, how do you go about that? And if you don't, have you done it in the past and you've changed your mind? Yeah, no, I, we definitely utilize it in, in, in programming and, and we have a big enough... Uh, database of athletes that we've tested where we can really dive deep into into certain profiles and what certain strategies look like and what they lack and, and do a needs analysis of each athlete and I, I do think um I mean shoot like I don't know if you if you knew Ty Terrell but Ty Terrell is a uh he's an assistant strength coach with the Atlanta Hawks and he was on okay. a podcast recently I can't remember which one it was but he talked about um you know the force plate and and the ability to look at the counter movement jump and just the phases of unloading and then, you know, the propulsive phase and how to change direction, you need to be able to load and unload. I mean, if you don't go through somewhat of a range of motion, like you're not, you're not going in any direction. So knowing how the body, like knowing how an athlete loads vertically is super important, even when you're talking horizontal and, uh, you know, transverse or any type of movement, lateral, whatever it is, you got to be able to load that lower body. So it's a great way to see how athletes do it, what their strategy is, like how how fast is the contraction, how how much force are they putting in, and how how what is the rate of the force being put in, and then are they able to you know create a ton of force at zero or force at zero velocity, and um, understanding how those play into performance and movement, I think that's and that's what's funny is like that's where my the tweets were coming from when I was writing the tweets. What I was really trying to do was, in my opinion, if you can. It was really for me, it was like post-it notes for me. Like I'm writing down my ideas and if I can fit them into the characters of a tweet, it means I, I think I understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, the like the metrics I, t- I tweeted about are the ones I care about. Like I like I like contraction time. I like counter movement depth, which aren't the sexy metrics. <laughs> like counter movement depth and um, contraction time aren't that sexy. Jump height's not that sexy but they tell you a ton about the strategy that the athlete's using. And then you so, can train the strategy so, based on, based on the athlete. And this gets back to the programming mm-hmm. based on the athlete and what you're trying to accomplish. For instance, a guard, like maybe um, I'm not saying a ton of counter movement depth isn't good, but if you're going to have a ton of counter movement depth, you better make sure you're able to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, you're able to produce force at the bottom, like, and, you know, so there's things that you can look at from position to position, what you're trying to do with each athlete from a like a load and explode perspective and being able to profile them, look at where they're weak, where they're lacking, where they're strong and then go from there. Um, so that's 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 one of the ways you can really use, I think, the force plates to, to make your athletes better. 
I was that was my next my next question was going to be around the the counter movement um, squat depth and mm. you know why 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 that. But what were the metrics that you mentioned? Jump high. Um, I mean, it, contraction time is is a, okay. is a good one. Um, so what are you learning from, con- really from contraction time? What's that? What are you lo- what are you learning from contraction time? Uh, just basically uh, how quick their neuromuscular system can fire. Okay. But okay. but mainly if you want to dive deeper into that eccentric duration. And mm-hmm. I like that. I actually like that from a uh, readiness standpoint. That's a good one to use uh, if you're just looking at fatigue. Um, I love force at zero. I think for athletes who, who need to change direction, I think being able to uh, to apply force and, and have stiffness at the bottom of that contraction uh, of the braking phase, I think is super important. Um, so force at zero is another a, a good one that I like. Um, and then... Uh, I mean, impulse is, is king. At the end of the day, impulse is, is what allows people to jump. So, you know, force over time. So I think those are my go-tos is really just looking at, at, at those. Those are main ones. I mean, we can go deep, but there's other ones we use. But I think uh, for simplicity's sake, those, those are the big ones. So from an injury screening point of view, are they still the same metrics that you're diving into? Or is there anything additional in that area? Again, another area that you dived into in the paper with, with Jake and Dean. I think that's that's when you really start to get into the asymmetry stuff. Okay. That's that's when um, you know from a performance standpoint. I mean, asymmetries it's cool and all, and like you definitely flag guys when you see big discrepancies. But that's when you really start to focus on the asymmetries of both, um, you know, e- the eccentric loading, concentric, and landing um, portions of the jump. And then if you have a ton of baseline data and you do it consistently, you'll be able to take some real cool um, insights from that. And that's that, that's the other thing is like how often are you doing it and and I've been on team and, and this is really it's, it's team by team from what I've seen and I've I've gone up in the frequency that we've tested I've gone down the frequency frequency that we've tested and a lot of it has to be sensitive to the uh, the culture of your team culture of your of your organization what's important and then how much you're throwing at the athletes because these guys have a ton of mm. things being thrown at them and they play 82 games so. Um, it's hectic, and sometimes you you may you may pull back on the force plate testing, or you may you know push another form of testing or whatever. But um, it's got to be environment specific. But as far as the injury stuff goes, yeah, that's that's where the asymmetries come in, and and uh, you know hopefully you have a really good data set for baseline info. Have force has force plate testing always been no matter what which area you're actually looking for when you're testing on force plates? But has it always been a standalone event, or have you tried to integrate it within? The gym sessions themselves. Um, I try. I've done both. I've. Um, it's been its own thing where guys know, like, okay, today's a force plate day, whatever. And then there's days where it's actually built into the programming. Okay. And uh, you know, <laughs> whether it's uh, you know sneaky or or not, like you know, even labeling and activation and not like force plate testing <laughs> can sometimes help. Like you know, you write you write on the whiteboard or you know you have it on the TV screen, like activation, like counter movement jump. Right. And it doesn't sound like testing when you call it activation. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, guys, they, they, you know, guys, these kids, these kids are smart. They understand and, and they, they know they're testing at the end of the day, but, um, I've done both. I've done both. I love to integrate with training as much as possible, as long as I'm not, you know, potentiating, potentiating them before, you know, it, a lot of them have their standardized warmups that they do and they have their, um, they have their prehab stuff they do. They have everything before the session. And I like to really, because that's consistent, that's standardized. I like them to test after that, but as part of their, their training session. Mm-hmm. Last one, rehab. Anything additional there? 
guess it's dependent so. upon the rehab. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. And how much, how much info or what info are you actually feeding back to to your athletes? Ooh, um, that's a that's a that's a touchy one because, and this is one of the things that me and Corey just talked about last mm. night actually when we were hanging out. Um, you definitely do a case by case. There's times, a lot of nights, we actually test on game days. Okay. Um, and that's it's because we play so many games. It's so many days. It's it's good data. And guys have really consistent schedules on game days. They're they're locked in, and um, you're getting a uh, you're getting consistency. And it's it's 82 data points. 82 data points is, is, a, is a ton of good information to have. So, um, but the thing is, is there are certain athletes that I don't think have, they're not mentally, they don't want to know if they have a really crappy jump. Mm-hmm. They don't really always want to know that on game day. So, you know, that's where, you know, you do need to have some soft skills of being able to, to decide whether or not you're saying anything. And then how, if you're not going to say it, how do you not say it so that they don't think, Oh, I did poorly because he didn't tell me. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you got to be sensitive to that. And um, I would say for the most part, athletes, the, at least the athletes, well, you have some athletes that want to know exactly, like right when they test, what was it? And then you have some that just want to know the trends. And um, like a lot of our rookies, like I think a lot of our young guys are, they're most in- interested in like the slow, steady, like trend upward in certain metrics. And that's something I communicate with them weekly. And we, we kind of talk about where we're at. Um so it's a case by case thing. I, I usually don't tell them the metric unless I know they're super interested in it mm-hmm. right after they test. And it, so that, but it's case by case for for the reasons I just I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. How's the integration of force plates been in the organizations that you've you've been at with in terms of the in terms of the data that you're collecting on players? Obviously, you've been around before force plates were fully integrated in the NBA, which it sounds like they they clearly are from from speaking to a few of you guys. Mm. to a point now where it's kind of a given was there any pushback in terms of players like why are we doing this what information are you collecting on me yeah you're always gonna have pushback i mean we have a roster of 15 um you're gonna have one or two guys that on every team that are gonna not be as into it and and for i understand it too i mean these players and usually it lines up with like who's a free agent like who's gonna be signing a new contract for the next year and um I, I mean, I get it. And that's part of the CBA. Yeah, like absolutely. they have the right, they don't, they don't have to do a force plate test for us. Like if there's no, um, you can't force them to. And so like as a practitioner, we have to be good at educating them as to why, and then having a good connection and communicating it. And I think the, the thing I did early on was I didn't communicate the results uh, well enough. Like I didn't communicate them in a way they could understand, but then also um, I wasn't doing it consistent enough. And that's something I got better at as I went. But as far as your question, like, yeah, force plates are pretty much a given in the NBA right now. Um, I don't know if there's a team out there who doesn't have one. Uh, maybe there is, but um, when I was with the Atlanta Hawks, we 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 used the Opta Jump. That was like our original, and then we moved into the force plates right before I left. But um, yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone everyone's got one now. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, last but not least, the important stuff. Where can people get the book? Oh man! <laughs> uh, so it's on uh, my site. Uh, my uh, my company's name is athleteframework.com. So there's a, okay. there's a shop there. You can check that out. Um, you know, follow me on Instagram at Daniel Bove. I, I post a lot of stuff related related to the quadrant system and and whatnot. And then um, Twitter at Daniel Bove as well. Have you got the bug? The writing the book writing bug to want to do another one? Is there anything else in the pipeline? Oh, uh, nothing in the pipeline right now. Uh, 
but I'm sure I'll get the itch. I mean, it was it was a fun process, but also, uh, you know, we just, we actually so another another fun tidbit. Uh, we just had our second child back uh, a couple months ago, and my goal was I my goal was like I'm getting this book done before the kid comes because once <laughs> the kid comes, I can't do shit. Yep. <laughs> so. Um, and I, and I made that happen, and my wife is super grateful that I did. <laughs> yes. But, um, but I think when the time comes and I'm, I'm inspired again, because it really started out of inspiration. It wasn't like a, a, a mechanical, like robotic thing that I did. It was like, this is just fun. And then it kind of just it turned into putting a book out. So I'm sure the time will come again where I'll, where I'll get back to writing. Um, but I don't know what it would be. And who knows? It, it could be a completely different subject. Mm-hmm. Cool. Daniel, thank you very much for uh, giving up an hour of your time to have a little chat. Apologies, my as we're getting later into the evening, my throat is slowly dying. So apologies, <laughs> apologies there for the raspy nature of my uh, my voice. But yeah, thank you very much for giving up your time while you're in Vegas. Good luck while you're there in Summer League. And um, I'll chat to you soon. Appreciate your time. Rob, thank you so much for having me on, man. Pleasure, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 360 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thank you to you for giving up your time to listen to this episode, but also big thanks to Daniel for giving up a little bit of time in his schedule in the Summer League to have a little chat around the Quadrant system and force plate testing. Also big thanks to iMeasureU, Hawking Dynamics, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do now. Do it now. And I will chat to you next week. <laughs>